Hey everybody, this is Paul from Make Teaching Sustainable, and I want to welcome you to the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Today, Aaron Healy joins us on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Aaron taught high school English for several years before earning her master's in educational psychology and transitioning to her current role as an instructional systems coach. She founded the Young Educators Society of Rhode Island in 2018, which is currently rebranding to New Teachers Today, and she did this to develop a supportive professional and social network for beginning teachers in their transitional and early years in the classroom. Her work in this space has expanded to include co-chairing her union's statewide early career educator committee, teaching as an adjunct faculty member at the University of Rhode Island School of Education, and promoting new ideas in education as the speaker's network manager with the Teach Better team. In her free time, Erin can usually be found out in the woods on a walk with her son and puppy, or playing the trumpet in the nation's oldest community concert band. And with that, let's meet Erin. Hey Erin, how's it going? Good, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited. I'm I'm so excited to see you again. Just for everyone listening out there, um, Aaron and I met at South by Southwest EDU in what year is it? 2022, it, I, I think. 2022 is not this year. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I'm really grateful that you that you were willing to come on here and talk to me about um sustainable teaching. So thank you so much. Um. Let's just let's jump right in. Tell us all a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your role? What's your story? And what keeps you coming back to education? Yeah, so it's, I feel like I wear a lot of hats, but they kind of all fall under a similar bucket to sustainable teaching. So I used to teach high school English, and I'm now an instructional systems coach at a a local high school. So the role is kind of like an instructional coach, except the systems part in there allows me to work across departments, across grade levels to really build those school level and district level systems, specifically regarding um, our multi-tiered systems of support. I work really closely with our student support specialists to build up those MTSS systems for kids. Um, I also, in an adjunct lecturer at the University of Rhode Island School of Education, and I'm the speakers network manager for the Teach Better team. So a lot of my work involves big ideas in education and then bringing them back to the teaching level, the classroom level. I started an organization called the Young Educators Society of Rhode Island in 2018 that's currently getting a rebrand to uh, the new teachers today to really support anyone who's entering the classroom right now in this time of a lot of teacher turnover through like the traditional teaching prep practices or through any like untraditional teaching steps. And so that's been really exciting to kind of work with newer teachers, no matter you know how old they are, no matter how many years of experience they might have in a previous uh, profession to really support that classroom level work. Yeah, that's a lot of hats, but I'm really excited about the work that I do. And it's a lot of fun. I love it. It sounds like you would have like a kind of some like unique insight into what teacher prep is like, and then no, it, and it's unique insight into teacher prep, but also in a very unique, somewhat unique time, right? Where we're really dealing with this this problem of teacher burnout, mass exodus of teachers, and teachers not or people not wanting to become teachers, right? So it's like you're kind of in a you're kind of in a critical place in in the in the education ecosystem, if you will, right now. I hope so. And it's really nice to be in Rhode Island, which is such a small state. Like we have 
about 33 school districts in a state that you can drive across in an hour or less. And so the idea that like we have still siloed teachers coming into this field or burning out of this field that the national rates which are incredibly high right now, but I get to like kind of work in this little microcosm of all that going on and be able to drive to different schools, work with different teachers, bring teachers together from across the state too. It's a really unique opportunity in a very tiny state. Yeah. I mean, I love that idea of connectedness, right? Because I think sometimes there is an element of sustainability in teaching that goes beyond just the practices and the resources. And there's something about feeling connected to something bigger than yourself, you know? Like, I think sometimes um, there is this sense of like, there can be this sense of individualism in in schools, right? Like, I'm just going to close my door. I'm going to do my own thing. Like, I'm going to work by myself. And I think sometimes that's helpful, right? If if there's a if there's a problem you can't overcome, right? But in the long run, I don't think that is sustainable for for teachers to work in silos or to feel siloed. Um, I know you feel that way too. So that's really actually a very nice segue into the first question we usually answer on this, which is, um, you know, what are those conditions, practices, or resources that you believe unsustainable? Feel free to you know unpack that siloing more if you want to, or tell me what else you think. Um, is currently unsustainable in education. Absolutely. So that kind of, yeah, it it's a lot of the basis of the work that I do is coming from my own personal experiences of feeling like I was really siloed when I first started teaching. Uh, again, it's a very small state. I was, I started teaching in a charter school about 10 minutes from where I grew up. So I still knew people in the community, but I didn't know any other new teachers. Uh, when I switched over to a, a large public career and tech based high school, I felt the same way. Like I wasn't working with people who were at my experience, whether that was like with community perceptions around different like political and cultural lines, economic issues. And at the time, a lack of community awareness on how hard it is to be a teacher Um, and the experiences of a a young 20 something teacher as well, like moving out for the first time, how to navigate a contract, looking for the correct healthcare systems. Like when you are going through all of that, as a, especially as a beginning teacher and trying to also figure out like, what's my classroom management style. If you're in a high school, like these kids are four or five years younger than me. Like that, that's not that far of an age gap. What, what makes them like listen or respect uh, me as a young teacher. Those are very unique experiences that can often be overlooked when you're looking at a traditional like professional development or teacher prep program, because they, they, they train you in college, they send you off and then you're literally navigating all of a sudden your own for the first time. Um, I feel like when we hit the pandemic, a lot of the cultural perceptions around education changed. I really hope for the better. Like, oh, now we see that, you know, schools aren't, schools are more than just free childcare, right? There's a lot going on that is building up our, our future, really our future population. And we need to take care of that more. I feel like that might not have been the end result of the pandemic coming out of like how, People are viewing education now. I feel like everyone wants to be a lot more involved because they could get that inside glance over their child's shoulder into the Zoom screen of their classroom too. Um, Definitely a very interesting time to be a teacher in the community perceptions about what this job looks like. And I feel like, especially right now, such high teacher burnout rate, like that's a huge contributing factor because if I talk to any of my friends who aren't in the classroom, none of them have any idea what it's like to have the entire community and cultural ecosystem 
diving that deeply into your profession. Like there's so many eyes on your curriculum. There's so many different concerns. And like, as somebody who did like personally experience the community backlash for what was going on in my classroom, like that is really hard to navigate that no other profession, no other professional has to, has to deal with. And a lot of the supports, whether that's from like your administration or your union, if you're lucky enough to work with the union or um, different mentors or colleagues, that no one's prepared for that right now. And so that's, I feel like a huge contributing factor to what's, to what's not making teaching sustainable at all in this in this current climate. But I, I see light at the end of the tunnel, but it's just really hard right now, culturally, to be a teacher. It really is. I mean, I remember that moment in because I was still in the classroom in March of 2020 when the pandemic started. And I remember there was this kind of sort of like collective uplifting of teachers for a minute, you know, where where everyone was like, wow, they're so amazing. They just moved their whole entire classrooms online and their whole curriculum online and you know, parents are making jokes on social media about how, like, they basically don't want to be at home with their kids anymore and they get how hard it is to be a teacher and, you know, yada. But then that, that like, turned completely on its head when the pandemic lasted longer than anyone wanted it to, right? And then all of a sudden, in the fall, we're back to the, you know, lazy teacher narrative. Teachers just don't want to go back to work, blah, 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 which was the case for me. You know, I was one of those teachers that did not want to go back to work but not because I didn't want to be with my kids. It was because we didn't have a vaccine. And I was like, so you want me to be in a small classroom in an old building that's not ventilated. There's not enough room. There's not, there's not mathematically, there's not enough square footage for everyone to be six feet apart. Then not to mention, I'm not, I don't want to manage masks all day and all that stuff in, and, and, and also manage my anxiety around what am I going to bring home, you know? And um, so it was, it was so crazy to me how, I thought too that like there was going to be this massive shift in an appreciation for what teachers do. And it just, it, it kind of was like a sparkler, you know, it like it, this appreciation for teachers was there. And then all of a sudden it was just gone, you know, like it, it was, it was kind of, I don't know, it was kind of upsetting and kind of jarring for me. That's exactly how I felt. It was like a whiplash because yeah, you're right. We had I, March 17th, I was like sitting in a class with one other teacher being like, do we bring our devices home? And do we like quickly run around and give books to kids? Like, we don't know when we're coming back. We got the news. We changed our entire profession in under two weeks. Like no, no other field I feel like had to completely 180 and start from scratch and forget everything you knew about teaching and then completely like change it and continue teaching. Uh, for the rest of the school year, start up again in the fall in a completely different mindset. That was so hard for teachers. And we did it like kudos to teachers. And we should, we should be really celebrating that fact that we were able to completely upend and change our entire understanding of what it means to educate a child and do it successfully. And that I feel like part of the whiplash was professionally, like culturally, community, socially, yes, there's a lot of challenges. But even professionally, that wasn't celebrated or the momentum wasn't there after we did that and I feel like if you know if state departments of ed or anything had even like acknowledged that in a way that took the momentum of the changes that were made and continued growing on them as opposed to being like we're just going to go back to normal as soon as we can we're just going to revert to what we know because that's like that's the safe comfort zone and, and no it's just like keep that keep that energy and that momentum going we we built so much 
good in that moment, even though it was incredibly hard, we should continue to grow on that as a profession. And we just, we just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I sense that. I mean, I'm working with schools right now, you know, and like the, the, the schools I work with are amazing. I love all the teachers. I love the principals I work with. Um, what I noticed though, is that a lot of the constraints that schools, that teachers, that principals are under right now are basically the same constraints that they were under before the pandemic, which is to your point, you know, not, we haven't, we haven't really learned as much as I think we could have from that, that kind of, um, critical point. I wanted to go back to something you said before, um, because you, you were talking about how, like, teaching is unique in the sense that so many people have so many opinions on it and we're so kind of like nitpicked, right. In a way that other professions aren't really, um, I have my opinions on this, but I want to hear from your perspective. Why do you think that is that we are more nitpicked than most other professions? I honestly think that it's because everybody, we are very, very fortunate to live in a society that puts value on K-12 education and everybody essentially the vast majority of American citizens have had some basis in the K-12 education system. So because everybody has an intro level understanding because they all had similar-ish experiences going to an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, um, they, they, we, we all have to go to school. So they generally have the like understanding of like, this is my experience. And then why is your experience so different from mine? It shouldn't be because everybody I know had the same experience as opposed to like a lot of my friends are engineers. So I don't have an understanding of what it takes to be an engineer. That's a totally different branch of learning that they, in, they invested their time in. They, they went further in education to, to get that understanding for a job that I could not critique because I have no understanding or basis of knowledge. And I feel like people are more comfortable making, um, making snap judgments or, or looking into this because they have some sort of personal connection if I had a personal connection to healthcare or to um, the the histories of public humanities, I'm sure I would like feel the same. I could like, oh, I can, I can support that or I can understand that at a personal level, uh, but I don't because I don't have a background in that. Well, I don't know about you, but like I go to the doctor, so I clearly know as much as my doctor does. Of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, I feel like I, I, and oversimplified, obviously, but still an, an analogy, right? That like, just because I go to the doctor doesn't mean I know as much as my doctor does. Just because I go to the dentist doesn't mean I know what necessarily is best for my teeth, right? And just because I went to school or just because my kid goes to school or just because my neighbor's kid goes to school, it doesn't mean I know more than the professionals do, you know? And I, I think in part, it comes back to our definitions of success and the way and I, I see this in so many different areas, not just in this topic, but we, the way we define success colors what we do and how we think about things. Right. And so many people or sorry, people, I think attribute their success to their education. Right. And they in part should, there's an element of privilege. There's an element of systems that like amplify privilege that contributes to, you know, what we determine as success in a capitalist society. But people sort of just link it right back to their education. Oh, well, I'm successful because 
I got good grades in school. I did what my teachers told me. I played the game of school and that's how I became successful. So if I was able to become successful in this, in my field, because of the way I learned, then everyone should be able to learn in the way that I learned and become successful too. And that's ignoring the idea that everyone's different, that the system wasn't built for everybody, right? And that's what really, I think that's what really frustrates me is people have a hard time seeing outside of themselves and seeing outside of their story, seeing outside of their privilege to realize that that's not going to work for everybody, right? And that for everyone to get a fair shot at being successful in our society, our school system has to be a little more flexible, you know? Oh, absolutely. And that was the thing that I really valued in when teaching in a hybrid or online space is I was able to provide that flexibility for students who had to go to work because their parents were immunocompromised. And so they needed to bring in some money. So I would be like hopping on a call with them at seven o'clock at night just to catch them up because that was the flexibility that they needed. And, and for kids who are doing internships or they're trying to get career experience and like this factory model education that we've grown up with in American history, like that doesn't work anymore for the population that we're serving, but we're still trying to get back to that. We're still trying to make sure that like, that is the norm. That is what we are working towards is this system because any other way is not only um, just like, I don't know. It's just kind of crazy because you have this population that needs a different type of education system, but you have a teacher preparatory pipeline and teachers who are so embedded in the older system that to them in that mindset, it becomes unsustainable to do anything different. And that, that generational shift, I feel like between people who are coming in in like the time that I was going to the teacher prep program or coming in now through these untraditional pipelines and the people who have been established because Education, again, is one of those only careers where the only way you get additional support, you get a higher salary, you get access to professional development, you get um, you get per- personal support like accumulated sick days um, is because you stay in your position. You stay in your role, you stay in your lane, you stay in your classroom. It's no other profession is like that. The longer you stay in one place and have no upward trajectory, like you don't get raises. <laughs> it, it, it's the way that we set up teachers means that the kind of innovation that we need to see as a society becomes unsustainable for them because they have to leave their classrooms. They'd have to do something different. They would lose their sick days. They would lose their their, their professional development support. They would lose union support if they're a tenured teacher. Um, you get locked into that role. So there's there can be no sort of innovation in, in the way that it's set up right now. Yeah. And it after a certain point, it's really hard to switch districts too, you know, because like yeah. I remember I... I was looking at, I was looking to go back into a school a couple of years ago and I interviewed for this position. It was actually an instructional coaching position, like really liked the the assistant superintendent, really liked the other coaches I met. Um, and at that point I had, you know, 10 years of experience in the classroom. And as we were talking about like a job offer, they were saying they couldn't, the union contract wouldn't allow them to offer me anything higher than year seven on the salary scale. And I was like, wait a second, like that, which, you know, that was only three years difference, right? But that's still, you know, on a salary schedule, that's relatively significant in terms of pay. But you think about that from like a 15th year teacher's perspective or an 18th year teacher's perspective. And knowing that when you enter into a new district, they're not going to give you any more than seven or eight years of service. I mean, that stinks. And it's also just kind of a slap in the face to experienced teachers, 
you know, that like you can't, you, you are to, to, I say, I say this because to your point, you get really stuck and you start to feel like I have no other options. I can't, you know, a lot of other professions, there's competition, right? There's like an element of, you know, employers can compete for me and they can offer me better packages. You can't really do that as just a practicing teacher in education, which is kind of garbage. Oh, yeah. I'm in my fourth school district in my eight year career so far. And I I was told, like, don't get a master's until after you stay in a school district long enough to get tenure because you are too expensive for another school district to hire if you like try to get a new job with a master's degree. So I stayed in my school district until I got tenure and then I got my master's degree and then a bunch of stuff happened. And so I transferred school districts, but it was so scary knowing that like, okay, I now have a master's. I'm more expensive to hire. I have six or five or six years of experience that starting at a higher step to your point. Um, and also all the sick days that I had accumulated, like I wanted to start a family. I just welcomed my first child. I had eight paid days of sick time and I had no access to like a sick bank. I had no access to extra days off. I had no paid maternity leave. I had eight days. That was it. Like my last paycheck was months and months ago because I changed districts. If I had stayed where I was, I would have been fine. But like teachers, I was fortunate I can take that risk because my husband is very well established in his school district. But like teachers who are in that situation, they're either like, okay, I'm going to either improve myself professionally. I'm going to get that next job. I'm going to get that next step up or I'm going to start a family or I'm going to, you know, like try to figure it out how to stay in the school district. I'm going to get a raise next year. If I stay here, it's those choices are so hard for people to balance. And, and that goes back to that, that sustainability, that personal sustainability role. You have to make decisions like that all the time, either your career or your family. And it's really, really hard. Which that, you know, not to belabor the pandemic point, but a lot of people were grappling with that in the pandemic. And and what frustrated me at that point was people were like, well, you sign up for this. If you don't like it, just leave, you know? And it's like, well, it's not that simple for a lot of people who are teaching, especially, excuse me, especially when, you know, if you're a single parent and you're a teacher and your kid's health insurance hinges upon, you know, your job or, you know, like, you make a decent enough salary to support your kids if you're a single parent or even if you're a two income household, right? Like people's lives depend on their salaries and to reduce it down to like, well, you signed up for this. And so, yeah, you should go and teach in person in a pandemic before vaccines. Like it's just, it's so, um, it just puts teachers in really, in really tough places. And I don't think people, I don't think the broader public fully understands the how difficult it is and how difficult it is to make those choices to change careers or change schools and and whatnot. Um, but we've talked a lot about what's unsustainable so far. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what do you think either solutions to these problems or other other ideas around conditions, practices, resources that you believe to be sustainable? Well, a lot of this I feel like has to do with teachers trying to navigate this independently. And like I am a firm believer in bringing a community together and then like working within that community's strengths. So if if we know that teachers are all experiencing this individually, let's intentionally design more opportunities to build a community of support, whether that's like in a school or a district or with your union or within a state like that's really small like Rhode Island. And then like 
be able to share those experiences and then also engage the community with those experiences because you have more than one voice sharing it at a time. I feel like that's really, really valuable to not only help teachers feel like they're not doing this alone, but to also brainstorm and get other ideas about what other teachers have done to make that these challenges look a little bit more able to work for them and for their families. And with that kind of community support and knowing for any district leaders or or state leaders to know that those intentionally designed community opportunities are existing, maybe also help advocate for uh, on the behalf of those newer teachers in their first couple of years or their transition teachers in those first couple of years. I was fortunate to sit in on a union uh, contract renegotiation committee a couple of years ago, and I was by far the youngest voice on the contract renegotiation committee, but it was so enlightening to hear that a lot of teachers who have been working in these systems, they don't really know the experience of newer teachers, so they don't know what to advocate for. So I'm here saying like, hey, we need, you know, these kinds of opportunity to access sick bank or like to get some of this professional development that some of the older, more experienced tenure teachers are getting. Like, oh, we never even thought about that because for them, like they made it through those first couple of years and they're focused on the future. And so having that community to pull ideas from shows people in power in those positions how to better advocate for some of these unsustainable practices, I think. Um, that That's just community support is so critical. Yeah, it makes me think of um, the idea of collectivism. Um, and I, I in, so in my book, Make Teaching Sustainable, one of the mindset shifts is towards collectivism. And, and I think that that's a more sustainable approach than being individualistic, which goes back to your point about like working in silos or like teachers navigating the system on your own, because like, we just can't be expected to do everything on our own. It's just not, it's not sustainable. It's not realistic to have to know everything about everything. But also there's this element of like, sometimes you sort of have to just step back and be an observer, or sometimes you have to just step back and recharge your batteries you cannot be going, 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 going all the time and trying to do everything yourself. Like it is more sustainable, like to, to be part of a network. And for me, it's about energy, right? Like it's about the energy demands of teaching in the classroom or just the energy demands of sustaining the profession outside of just the teaching itself. What we need to do is distribute the energy demands amongst a large group of people. And we do that with a collectivist mindset where we engage with others and support one another and educate one another. And, you know, that, that whole like step up and step back idea. And I think that can be applied from what you're talking about all the way down to the classroom level, where when we're in our classrooms, teaching kids or working with kids or cultivating these learning experiences, right? We should see our classrooms as networks as well, where kids are learning together um, because you can get that those same benefits where sometimes some kids can step back and recharge their batteries while other kids step forward and sort of carry the demands of learning that day and then vice versa the next day. You know, so that idea of the network, that idea of collectivism just feels so powerful to me in terms of sustainability and can be applied in so many contexts within education. Oh, absolutely. And I was fortunate to do a leadership program in college that talked a lot about the Clifton Strengths Finder assessment. It's now just rebranded as Clifton Strengths. And that helped me understand like leadership or these this collectivism idea of bringing different voices to the table. It's all on what your personal talents are. And the idea of someone being like, I can 
you know, I can change the system. I can take on this, this stuff. It's really ignoring the fact that other people are going to have strengths that are your weaknesses. And instead of constantly trying to like rebuild your weaknesses, it's more uh, sustainable for you as an individual, as a, and leadership and education to work towards your strengths, as opposed to backfilling the stuff that you're not as strong in and then letting somebody else who is strong in those areas rise to the top and share those talents. Um, it, I've tried this in my classroom, like looking at individual student strengths to build collaborative teams to get them to kind of, you know, get, work towards the final project together. But I've also really tried to bring that mindset into my role as a systems coach now, looking at like which teachers have talent in, for example, project-based learning or data analysis, and then designing teams to approach something like we're currently working on our recertification and our, our reaccreditation process. And it's a really lengthy process with NEASC uh, to, to reaccredit our school and finding, identifying people who bring different talents to the forefront of that project is going to help us come up with a better final project, not just for like our school, but also for our students and then support those teachers individually knowing that like, yes, I'm going to step into this talent. I'm going to be confident in my ability to, to bring this aspect to the table. And I, and finding value in other people seeing that talent in me and allowing me to share my voice. Uh, I think it's so, so powerful. It's a really great, um, it's a really great book. It's a really great uh, process to kind of think about. I highly recommend it. It's like a little bit outside education. I think it was more designed for like the business sector, but it is, it is so valuable to bring that mindset back into the classroom, into school design. So highly recommend if you haven't heard of the Clifton Strengths Assessment to yeah. check out the book. I mean, that idea of, it's an idea of asset-based being asset based, yeah. right? And that again, it's another one of those things. You could take it from the very broad system, right? Or you could take it from down to professional learning and you could take it right into your classroom too. When people feel like their strengths, their assets are seen and amplified, they're more likely to, I think they're more likely to engage in the collective and they're more likely to carry some of those energy demands of teaching and learning in the classroom. Something else you said really resonated with me at I, I I think I heard it correctly um, that there's something about um, like wanting to change the system and wanting to be the person who changes the system, right? Which is like overly individualistic. It doesn't make sense for one person to make, to change the whole system overnight. And actually we don't really want the whole system to be changed overnight. Like there's, it's very, I think it's very seductive sometimes to get into that, that way of thinking where it's like, let's burn down the system. The system's not working. You know, we need a new system. It's like, sure, I guess in an idealistic world, if we could snap our fingers and change the system overnight and make it more inclusive for everybody, we could do that. But it's actually not realistic to do that. And in fact, it might actually cause more harm to like burn down the system overnight. And so I agree with you, the best or the most sustainable approach to change is helping people see what they can contribute to make incremental shifts, whether it's towards sustainability or towards just teacher wellness or you know, protecting teachers or helping teachers, helping people see what's within their locus of control, you, leveraging their strengths to make those incremental shifts, knowing full well that those incremental shifts or those individual contributions over time will contribute to a more sustainable, more humanizing, hopefully, profession in the long run. Did I did I hear that right? Is that what you kind of what you were saying? Yo, yeah, no, that's exactly what I was saying. But it's interesting because I was thinking when you were sorry. <laughs> We welcome dogs. It's totally fine. <laughs> I was thinking when you were saying that, though, like we set up our classrooms to be spaces where the teachers are put in a role of like being the one to change this, 
trajectory of a student's life. Like it is on you. It is your responsibility. And we, we set teachers up with that mindset. So we're really signing up for failure. Um, and it's, it's the way I think you phrase it was just another reminder of like how our system needs to be so restructured because we're telling teachers like, yes, this is you. This is your responsibility. You are going to be the one to change this trajectory of a student's life and go forth and conquer. But that's not accurate. <laughs> It's the teacher savior, teacher martyr complex, you know, and it's it's really insidious. It's in it's in the the media narrative. It's in movies. It's in TV shows, and it's it's not it's not realistic. It's not fair, and it's it's definitely not sustainable. All right, Aaron. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. I think we had some great we had some great insights today on strength based education, the the um the power of collectivism, right, and like creating those those spaces where new teachers can support each other and where they can find the support they need to navigate, not just how to become a teacher um, or not just how to be a teacher, I should say, but also how to navigate all those other systems that they need to navigate outside of the classroom. Um, I'd love to have you back sometime to, to chat some more. Will you tell, um, will you tell listeners where um, they can reach out to you and get in contact with you if they want to? Absolutely. And please do. Cause again, this is a collective energy, a collective position. So like, the more we can connect, the better. And um, I'm really excited by the work that you're doing, Paul. So I'd love to come back in. Um, anyone can definitely connect with me. I'm pretty much, oh, very much into the LinkedIn space right now. Um, I feel like that's probably the most uh, consistent social media platform at this point. So, uh, but I, I am at Mrs. Erin Healy on every social platform. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, all of the spaces, X threads i am and mrs aaron healy and all those spaces and i'd love to connect so thank you awesome i need some coaching on linkedin i'm terrible on linkedin my gosh so that's m-r-s-e-r-i-n-h-e-a-l-e-y um thanks so much aaron for joining me today and um yeah we'll have you back soon thanks so much and that concludes this week's episode of the make teaching sustainable podcast Thanks so much to Aaron Healy for joining us today on the podcast. As a reminder, you can find me, Paul, at Sustain Teaching on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also head to maketeachingsustainable.org to learn more about the Sustainable Teaching Project, to make your voice heard, and to reach out to me. And as a reminder, if you'd like to join this podcast, if you'd like to be a guest, you can shoot me an email at paul at maketeachingsustainable.org and we'll find a time to chat. Thanks so much, everybody, and have a great week.